0: The first cut on this record has been cross format focused for airplay success. The men beat on the drums. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is James Meadway. We talked about the economic sanctions imposed on Russia in response to the Putin regime's invasion of Ukraine. We discussed the special significance of targeting the Russian Central Bank and the likely consequences for the Russian economy. We also talked about the extraordinary dangerousness of the situation given the raising of the alert status of Russia's nuclear forces and the apparent absence of any face-saving way in which Vladimir Putin could de-escalate. We also talked about China's gradual distancing from Russia since the start of the invasion. PTO will be putting out more frequent episodes in response to the Ukraine crisis. Ordinarily, the last 15-20 to minutes of regular PTO episodes are only available to £3 patrons of the show, but given the circumstances, it seems like a good idea to make these episodes freely available. However, if you've been finding the show useful and interesting, then please do consider supporting PTO on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash where you can give from as little as £1 per month, and you can also support the show in your local currency if you're outside of the UK. That address again is patreon.com forward slash Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon, and also by Verso Books who have lots of great titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is The Monster Enters by Mike Davis. In his earlier book, The Monster at Our Door, the renowned activist and author Mike Davis warned of a coming global threat of viral catastrophes. His new book, The Monster Enters, expands on that, surveying the scientific and political roots of today's COVID-19 viral disaster in the wider context of viral catastrophes such as avian flu, SARS and our capitalist global system. The Monster Enters, COVID-19, Avian Flu and the Plagues of Capitalism by Mike Davis is out this month from Verso Books. And now to today's interview. James Meadway is an economist and director of the Progressive Economy Forum. He's a former advisor to the then-Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell and his writing has appeared in The Guardian, The New Statesman, Tribune magazine and Open Democracy, amongst other venues. So James, you've just published an article on the significance and background to the sanctions and and various economic measures against Russia that were announced in the joint communique by uh, the European Commission, France, Germany, Italy, Canada and the United States on Saturday. But before we go into into the detail, I just wanted to get your thoughts on the Russian invasion of Ukraine more, more generally. So yesterday, Vladimir Putin announced that he was putting Russian nuclear forces on high alert. And it's been widely suggested that this is perhaps the most dangerous moment since the so-called New Cold War of the early 1980s, following the deterioration of of detente between the superpowers. Perhaps the most frightening aspect of the current situation, aside from the very immediate threat to Ukrainian civilians, is that it's very hard to see how Putin could at this stage de-escalate in any kind of face-saving manner. So Russia could perhaps declare that they have succeeded in degrading the strength of the Ukrainian military and and they could expand their control in the Donbass and and, and maybe maintain forces there. But that would still obviously represent a humiliating defeat, given the very comprehensive nature of, of what they appeared to be trying to do in Ukraine. The alternative, of course, is either a major conventional escalation, which would visit on Ukraine the kind of appalling devastation that Chechnya experienced at Putin's hands, or well, then there are the you know obviously properly unthinkable options in your view, just how dangerous do you think the situation is right now, and what kind of comparisons would you draw historically?
1: Look, the, the historical comparisons are, are not particularly appealing, and I notice a lot of people sort of lurch into World War Two, one way or the other. Partly because it's a sort of it's a, it's a morally clean war. If you, if you're sitting in Britain, like it's quite easy to say whose side you're on, and it was the side that won, and they were definitely in the right against people who are absolutely definitely, like, world historically in the wrong. So, so it's quite a sort of morally clean one, but the Closer examples are really something like the period before the First World War, not necessarily the First World War itself, but a point at which the world had a single hegemon for a long period of time, a single dominant power, which was Britain and its empire, which is then subject to challenge over the end of the 19th century. Uh, had moved quite rapidly to a situation where the world was looking increasingly mo- multipolar. By by the time the First World War, Britain had lost its industrial edge relative to um, America and, and Germany in particular. But there were other sort of major European land empires, including actually Russia in its in its own form. And this was a period of intense inter-imperialist uh, conflict. It, it was. From the late 19th century, a scramble for Africa, a scramble in the Balkans and then fairly directly military confrontation of various sorts between the different European powers at the time. And these move from and, and the pattern moves from being one where you have conflict that is well outside of those major powers. So it's somebody else fighting somewhere else in the world, perhaps the major powers involved. Perhaps it's Britain going off and, and, and invading Sudan or, 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 you know, the French and whoever else out of the way in Egypt at the end of the 19th century, because, you know, you want the Suez Canal and you know, installing a sort of puppet government there. Or it's the, you know, it's rarely, much more rarely, any kind of confrontation with, between the great powers. But then gradually these things become more unavoidable and you, and you sort of end up in the, in the First World War. And What you have now is something that that has some rather unpleasant parallels to that, that that at the end of a long period of globalization, of growing trade, of expanding financial integration across the world in which a single major power, in this case, the US, was absolutely dominant globally with no serious, you know, as they like to call it in Washington no serious peer competitors, has shifted over the last decade or two decades, I mean really you can sort of date it from Iraq, but certainly from 2008 into a world where there are many competing powers, none of them anything like as powerful as the US, but clearly the US no longer as dominant as it was. And a series of wars that take place which involve mostly a major power, perhaps, and a proxy, or proxies for major powers, but no direct conflict between major powers. Now that isn't quite happening in Ukraine as yet, but clearly we're inching quite close to it. When you have Russia invading Ukraine and guns and and uh, fighter jets and promise of support and various other things being done, and of course this this very dramatic, really quite radical action. Not unprecedented, as some people have said, not quite unprecedented, but it's very dramatic action that's been taken in the form of economic sanctions and the form of sanctions against the Russian Central Bank, which, which has to be seen as, a, as an instrument of war. It's not, it's not the case that sanctions are something that you can do harmlessly that this is something that you can just impose and it's separate from war and it's nothing like what you might do if you're actually shooting people. There's a relationship here, particularly as you actually have a war going on and you've intervened in this in some form. That's what the sanctions have done. And, And, you know, Vladimir Putin moving to saying we are now putting Russia's nuclear forces in high alert, is a response to that. He can't respond economically, there's nothing Russia can do there. But he can at least try and use what powers of what Russia does have to hand to sort of raise the stakes and try and push back in some sense. And I think you have to see the escalation on his side as part of a process of escalation which involves the sanctions on the Western side.
0: We'll come on to the sanctions more generally in a second. But just regarding the the parallel that you make with the inter-imperial rivalry of the pre-First World War period, so, an objection that would be made to that, particularly in, in, in sort of liberal circles, would be to say, well, during that period of time, you had rivalry between very sort of comparable states the British Empire, the German Empire, the French Empire, and, and so on. And although, of course, these different actors viewed themselves as morally superior to each other and had sort of internal ways in which they tried to justify that claim, uh, that that was really a, a, a nonsense and that they were actually broadly comparable. Today, of course, people would say, well, Britain, the United States, France, for all their flaws, for all their sort of aggressive military interventions, which have been extraordinarily bloody, of course. Internally, nonetheless, they are democracies. People in these societies experience more freedom, certainly than people in in Russia or or China. And it's that view which perhaps pushes somebody like Paul Mason, say, to the position of saying we ought to, in fact, broadly support NATO because it's a lesser evil and the, the rising powers in the world are certainly more domestically authoritarian than the United States or, 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 or Britain, say. What would your response be to that?
1: The basic problem there is, is mistaking what the sources of democracy and liberal freedoms are in the societies that have them. So, as you say, so Britain, France, Germany, the US, Canada, there's a sort of list of these places that you can go through. They're not there because these were aggressive military powers in the run up to the First World War. At the time of the First World War, Britain wasn't a particularly functioning democracy, I mean half the adult population, more than half actually, but certainly all women didn't have the vote, similar, much worse actually in Germany, France somewhat more democratic to that extent, but none of these places were functioning liberal democracies. What we got... And the reason we got the the, the extension of the franchise, additional democracy, more freedom of speech, the ability of trade unions, crucially to organise, the formation of labour and socialist parties, it's because they were fought for domestically. It's not because of militarism and aggression abroad. You get these things. And, and that mechanism hasn't changed. It is not because you have a drive towards the militarisation of societies that somehow those societies become more democratic domestically. This, this hasn't happened. I wouldn't have thought anywhere in history that you have that relationship in place, the, the more aggressive, the more militaristic a country's posture is abroad, the more democratic at home it somehow becomes. This isn't how the thing works. And you can see the space being closed down in Britain already that you can agree or disagree with the stop the war statement. Uh, I don't think it, you, know, I don't think anyone would say it's particularly well phrased. Let's say it like that. But to say that this is utterly unacceptable. This is completely beyond the pale. That, you know, if you say, if you start to suggest anything like that NATO has some role in the world beyond, you know, Wanting it, there to be peace everywhere, and then you're kind of repeating pro Putin propaganda. I think it's, it's a serious squeeze on the democratic space that's that's open to people. So it's not. There, the there case. was that
0: extraordinary story in the in the Financial Times describing Labour MPs who signed on to the Stop the War statement as being pro Russian. Which it, it's sort of hard to imagine that appearing in the FT, which is whatever else it is, it's relatively sober. Hard to imagine that being said just a few weeks ago about those those members of Parliament.
1: Yeah, it it was it was quite a a striking moment, illustrated perhaps for their own reasons with a picture of the the current Labour front bench rather than, you know, the the offending so-called MPs in question here. But that's exactly the kind of the, the cranking up of the rhetoric domestically, which makes it less likely that you're going to get more democracy at home and it really does put a bit of a downer in thinking well perhaps we're going to get some sort of democracy abroad if you want democracy in Ukraine it has to be delivered in the way that has always pretty much ever been won anywhere which is the people in the country who want that democracy have to fight for it and that's actually what's happened in Ukraine over a period of time now and a series of uprisings and, and revolts and all the rest of it and it's, it's not a simple or an easy process but nonetheless that's what's happening that's what you look to support. That isn't the same thing as saying, therefore, we need more militarization, we need more defence spending, we need more aggression against Russia and all these deemed baddies elsewhere in the world. The other bit you run up to, up against, uh, and this is where there's a sort of window of opportunity for some of what has happened to Russia, some of what the, the Western powers have done to Russia to be, to be actually workable and for for it to happen and have some impact, which is that it's quite hard in in a sort of interconnected world and in a world where where you have lots of countries entangled with each other economically. I mean, this is the the great thing of globalisation. This is the claim people would make in the high point of globalisation in the 2000s that, you know, no two countries, the McDonald's, Thomas Friedman, have ever gone to war, which is an extremely sort of facile way of of trying to make the point that once you're trading with people, once you have business interests set up all over the world, it's like, what is the point fighting? You're just going to destroy each other's business interests. Identical, by the way, to, to a kind of argument about super imperialism as it was called before the First World War, which is that we can't possibly have a world war because, you know, we have all this globalization, all this trade with each other, and it would, it would be costly for business in any country to actually have a, a major conflict, and therefore it can't happen until, of course, it does. But there is something to not being able to impose, for example, economic sanctions on a country that's very close to you. Like for Britain to try and impose economic sanctions on France in some form actually imposes quite a severe cost on Britain. Brexit is a sort of example of that. You're trying to radically change the terms of trade and it imposes some costs on Britain as well as on everyone else. a similar thing with China. Backwards and forwards about China, we'd like to do something about what China is up to, Uh, says everybody in the West. Well, you can't really do anything because you're kind of deeply entangled with it. In the case of Russia, it's been a period of time now where it has been disentangling from Western sort of financial systems that you can see this quite intentionally actually by the Russian elites as a way of getting out of any potential sanctions that might be imposed in a way of creating some protections for that economy against sanctions in the future that actually at this point in time mean it is relatively easier for the Western powers this sort of group of the US and Britain, Europe and Japan and, and Canada to impose some sanctions then to have some bite because Russia hasn't disentangled itself far enough, but it's about halfway through the process. So it, that is available as an option at this point in time. If the world de-globalises further, that would not be an effective option in, in quite the same way.
0: Going back to the point about democracy and, and various other freedoms being achieved internal to societies rather than being imposed from, from the outside supposing there's no possibility for for any kind of negotiated solution, what are the implications of that argument for, for example, weapons transfers to Ukraine, or, or even people going to fight in Ukraine? Because I think on most of the left, obviously, there's there's a fringe which, which takes a, you know, straightforwardly sort of pro-Putin line. Uh, it, it's small, it's not, you know, it's not a, a big thing, but it exists. But aside from them, most of the left recognises that this is an act of aggression and that, of course, Ukrainians have the legal right to fight against that that aggression. Well, it's
1: difficult for the reasons exactly as you described, that once you start moving, first of all, you start trying to move equipment into a war zone, you're already engaging closer with that war than you would have done. That means engaging closer than you would have done with whoever else is fighting. So if you're moving, I mean, it's just the announcement now that there are fighter jets from Europe being sent to Ukraine to take part in the war there, this is already ratcheting up what has been happening actually for, for a period of time, there, there's already been sort of material and, and, and arms equipment of various sorts uh, going into Ukraine, you're already ratcheting that up. And whatever your intentions with doing this, because you're moving closer to an actual sort of military conflict, the difficulty is pulling back from that conflict and avoiding the next steps in the ratchet because you don't know how the war is going to go. And one of the arguments you get is, if it doesn't go particularly well for you, is that, oh, well, then we need to commit even more resources. And so you move from, oh, here are some fighter jets to, well, here, here are some people to help fly them. And certainly if we, with some more advanced equipment, you'd be, here are some people to help you, to train you in using these these the sort of advanced surface-to-air
0: missile launchers or, or whatever it might be. So, mm. so you, you so inch in y- this Ukraine time, becomes a de facto member of NATO, even if it isn't a digital member.
1: Oh, but, I mean... You, no doubt, Russia would would want to try and argue something like that. Pretty much already, that this is already happening. That then you have, uh, you know, the, the the whole thing about NATO expansion is happening on your doorstep. But that's the risk with any war, and particularly one where there are very close interests of the major powers. Is that ratchet that moves you further further and further down the line to a direct confrontation, which given that Russia has already said its nuclear weapons are on high alert, looks absolutely catastrophic in terms of future peace in the world and all the rest of it. It's very, very hard and it's it's a difficult argument. I think, for the, for the left to steer its way through, to say that, oh, well, we can just supply guns and, and weapons and all the rest of it. And that's just supporting the right side in this campaign. And there aren't any consequences from doing this. You're, you're placing a very high faith in having that war won quickly and avoiding the ratchet at the very least. And there's a certain potential naivety attached to some of the calls around this.
0: Putin's actions so far seem to have been quite remarkably counterproductive. I mean, we've we've just spoken there about the effect it's having on uh, further pushing Ukraine into the NATO camp. But we're also seeing increased support for NATO in other currently non-NATO European countries. So a a survey for the Finnish public broadcaster YLE has found that for the first time, a majority of the country's population now apparently favours joining NATO. We've seen the dramatic increase in the German defence budget and, and greater moves towards a common EU defence policy. Do you think over the medium to long term we're going to see the dynamic of increased cooperation and and military integration in in Europe persist?
1: I'd have thought so. And the reason for thinking that is that there's a... You can see it already what's happening with, with... how the financial world is is being reconstructed or or rebuilt and this has been going on really since at least since 2008. You can count a bit further back from that. But following the the financial crisis, the rearrangement of how countries finance themselves, how banking systems uh, look after themselves, the relationship they have to their central banks that you start to get quite distinctly these emerging blocks of relatively closer economic relations compared to relatively more distant economic relations with the rest of the world. And you can see that in the you know, the creation, for instance, of the uh, Renminbi payment system by, by China that is distinct from SWIFT. I mean, Russia has started has done and set up its, its own version of the same uh, sort of ruble denominated payment system from 2014. So, so that economic logic and that kind of financial logic was already there. And it doesn't take a lot to see that, OK, this will also start to create a kind of political and potentially a military logic on top of that. And that's partly what you see playing out. That one version of the future here is that you have two or more sort of smaller blocks in the world than you would have had in the, the high point of globalization, let's say, 20 or 15 years ago, that you'd have had lots and lots of integration between many different countries in many different forms around the world organized around this sort of dollar hegemony system. And now you have something that looks a bit more like Competing blocks that are tightly organized amongst themselves economically, politically, and potentially militarily, but that there are fewer relationships between those blocks than there would have been at the high point of globalization. So you have a world of competing blocks of either very large countries or groups of countries banded together in some form with much less integration between them than there used to have been. And you can see this is also, awesome. I you can see in things like the internet, the way in which Different regulations are being applied by the major powers to different parts of the internet. The EU has its set of rules as it applies to the internet. It then expects people who deal with the EU to, to use and abide by those rules. It's the GDPR. This is the, the whole rigmarole you go through if you try and sign up for, for a mailing list. Um, necessary rigmarole, by the way. That is one way of trying to regulate parts of the internet. There's something very different that happens in China. There's something different, again, that, that happens in the US. So all of these. Movements put together look like a shift away from, oh, it's somewhat idealized, but not this relatively real globalized world, globalized economy of the, the 2000s, and into something that's much more in large, but on less regionalized uh, blocks in the world economy.
0: Is that a world do you think that, that the Chinese want? Because right now, I mean, it, it seems increasingly clear that if, if China was ever on board with the invasion of Ukraine, which in itself, seems somewhat unlikely. Now they seem very discomforted by by Russia's actions at this stage. To a large extent, that may be because Russia appears to be doing very poorly militarily. Does China, given its prior commitment to globalisation, which led to the slightly strange situation during the Trump presidency, where the PRC was in the position of defending multilateral institutions, whilst Donald Trump was busy ripping up the rules, do they really want these regional blocks? Is there a possibility that China might further distance itself from Russia, which as an ally seems like less of an asset today than perhaps it did before the invasion?
1: I think you, know, you could see today the comments from the, the Chinese uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, that the effect that, what was it, Russia Russia is a is a, a partner, not an ally, I think, or whichever way round, which is going to imply some distance relative to their um, limitless friendship of, of, what, three only three weeks ago, just before the Olympics. So,
0: yeah, so Russia only, is, is someone I once met. Maybe that's the next uh, stage. <laughs> well, exactly.
1: So, so they, they've kind of applied that distance. It's moved just in the last few days. I mean, when, when the war started, they were, you know, we, we we think sovereignty is important, but we're not really going to say anything much now. It's like no sovereignty is really important and and governments must must respect it. It's a real shift in their positioning here. In terms of what it has been trying to do economically for a long period of time, China has had clearly really these ambitions to create a, a version of economic integration around Asia in the first instance, built around very, very heavy infrastructure investment. This is the Belt and Road Initiative, which is geared towards from China's point of view, supporting its economic growth and development, but also means, you know, you're building railway lines and transport networks and providing infrastructure of various sorts right the way across Central Asia, right the way in large parts of Africa. And some of this is just raw material extractive that you're after natural gas or coal or rare earth minerals or whatever it might be. And that's a version of, of, of the kind of the, the hard physical part of the integration. There's then also, as I mentioned, this attempt to start to create a sort of remit centred financial system, including the creation of, a, of a, a separate payment system for international payments into and out of China that, that banks and financial institutions can sign up to. HSBC and uh, Standard Charter are, are both part of this arrangement now, and then another Part of it, but probably not a major part of it, was was a relatively closer alliance with Russia, based really primarily on a kind of raw materials access on the Chinese side, and that was always a relatively looser part of of any kind of design that, that seemed to be emerging there. And that you know the statements by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs reflects that relatively distant relationship that was already there. You know, China has its own version of what it would like to see happen in the world. And in particular, it's it's part of the world. It has a fairly clear sense of, of what it's, its own backyard is and what its relationship should be beyond that. What Russia is doing right now threatens to disrupt some of this. And as I mentioned in the piece, that Russia may have been, may have wanted to disentangle itself further from the sort of basically dollar centred world financial system and try and tie itself closer, more closely into this emerging renminbi centred financial system with the sort of ruble system as a, as a subset of that. But that renminbi centred system is nothing like as big as important as the, the dollar centred system yet. So so it's 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 come too soon that it can't defend itself against the, the kind of economic sanctions against the central bank in the way that it would like to. It, it's still left very, very exposed because this disentangling and re-entangling, if you like, with the the emerging Rouminbi system has not proceeded as far as would have been necessary to really insulate the central bank and and the ruble system from from what the the Western powers have done to it.
0: So in the article on the question of sanctions, you point out there's been a lot of focus on sanctions that target Russian-connected financing within the Western banking system. In the UK context, of course, there's been a lot of discussion around particular individuals, most obviously Roman Abramovich, the owner of, of Chelsea Football Club. And then, as, as we've discussed, as the removal of, of Russian banks from the uh, SWIFT interbank system. But you suggest that while those measures are all consequential, that, that they really pale in comparison to the measures targeting Russia's central bank, which would prevent the Russians from selling its reserves on international markets. And we're already seeing some of the effects of, of that. Can you talk about the significance of, of that and the effects that it is currently having in Russia?
1: Sure. I mean, the, the first two that you mentioned, the bits that have got all the attention, and, and they're, they're not nothing. As you say, they, they are consequential. It, it does matter if you as an oligarch can't, you know, buy things quite as easy as you wanted to. You can't use your, your gold Amex card or whatever you might actually use as an oligarch to, to buy things with. You can't visit some places. This I, I does believe some... black
0: Amex card is the top oh, of the line. I think yes, if you're an oligarch, I, that's, I should, well, should, that's what
1: you I, have. I don't know my, my billionaire trinkets <laughs> quite as well as as I should. So so this does affect you personally and it, and it sort of, it creates a form of pressure on the regime, particularly one that, that as you have in Russia that is so sort of personalised around the, the president and, and is based so much on these kind of networks of support and patronage and the rest of it, it does have some impact and likewise saying to a few russian banks that you can't use the swift system for interbank messaging it's it's not a directly a payment system it's a way of banks communicating messages about who to pay right so it's very very important if you're in the dollar world which majority of trade still takes place in this dollar world it's very important for you to be able to trade properly because you have to be able to tell people when to make payments it's not directly the payment system itself and that means that you can get around it. It's costly, it's difficult, it's slow, but if you want to place orders then at least in theory rather than using the SWIFT system you can pick up a phone and tell a bank to, to move money around or you send them a fax or whatever. I mean there is still danger here that you would still find yourself subject to some version of the sanctions so it's not completely cost-free, it's not nothing to have this happen, it's pretty serious, very serious to do it, even if you exclude the, the oil and gas trades which of course have been excluded. The one that's, that's like, it's, it's like the nuclear option and I think a Russian foreign former Russian foreign minister was describing as that is to say okay we're going to sanction your central bank which happens very very rarely the only other example I could think of the only other example I could think of and I probably have to go and look a bit harder for for some around this but the one that that sprung to mind was in the middle of the financial crisis just as things kicked off when Britain actually sanctioned in effect and somewhat incidentally the Icelandic central bank for, for a brief period of time in 2008. If you do this to a country's central bank which is the most important part of its entire banking system. This is the institution that's supposed to uh, secure stability for the banking system as a whole. You're basically at this point saying, okay, it will not now be possible for this central bank to guarantee stability of the entire sort of ruble-based banking system because the very large reserves that Russia has built up over many years, for the last decade or so, it's been running a current account surplus, it's been selling more abroad than it's been buying in, it's been exporting more than it imports, it's built up huge reserves as a result. It has been busily trying to Disinvest from anything dollar-denominated. It's getting, been getting rid of its foreign exchange holdings of dollars. It's been getting rid of U.S. Treasury bills. These are U.S. government bonds, and it's been shoving everything it can get hold of, really, in terms of its reserves into gold, which it holds physically in, in inside. Uh, and Russia. this
0: has been a, a long-term move to respond to just this kind of situation. Absolutely, that
1: it really starts to pick up after after 2014 when sanctions are threatened against the Russian central bank, but not actually delivered after the. Crimea crisis and the, the the sort of the declarations of independence by the, the two so-called People's Republics in eastern Ukraine. So that's when it starts to pick up. That's when this move out of dollar denomination into gold and into renminbi assets and, and just plain old renminbi, you know, currency starts to happen. It hasn't actually got far enough that the Russian central bank is insulated from the sanctions that have been placed. And the sanctions basically say that if you have these assets that are in dollars or if you have actual dollars you will not be allowed to trade them which matters a very great deal because if your currency as a central bank is under massive pressure from traders and nobody thinks it's worth anything currency traders elsewhere in the world nobody at home thinks it's worth anything anymore one of the things you would want to do is sell your foreign exchange reserves and buy your own currency to keep the value up this is people Remember Black Wednesday in the UK in 1992. The government at the time tried to do this to keep the value of the pound up, not very successfully. So, so, you try and perform these sorts of operations. If you can't do that, you can't guarantee the value of your currency. And therefore, your banks, if people who have to use your banks realize this, are at risk of a run. And that's basically what you see happening across Russia now. And it's, you know, a bank run is devastating, it hurts your, if it's a widespread bank run, it means that the sort of fundamental infrastructure of how a modern economy operates, which is its banking system, and the ability to shuffle money around, is suddenly in the domestic setting wiped out, or at least that part of it that depends on banks, you know, you can still have currency and things, but obviously your currency is now rapidly devaluing. So, suddenly everything's gummed up and your economy takes a massive hit as a result. And, and there, are, there are serious social consequences out the other side if people can't get hold of money and, and can't actually buy the things they need. I mean, This is what it comes down to if you can't get hold of cash. So it's absolutely devastating. It's a serious threat. It's a massive political threat and, and a danger to whoever happens to be in charge. So if you go and impose it on someone, it has to be considered like a weapon of war or something very similar to this as a very, very major aggressive step against, in this case, a, a hostile country. And, and that's exactly what's happened. That's what's playing out at the minute.
0: And do, do you think the, the British public have much much awareness of that? Because, you know, as, as you say, this could be a, a devastating weapon. We're talking about a country which... You know, there are 20 million Russians living in poverty. Most Russians don't have savings. There are people who, um, there are there are migrants who live in, in, in Russia and who are sending remittances to other places in Central Asia, say, and their families are dependent on those remittances. Do you think people have, have, have much idea of that? How, how well served do you think they are by the media when it comes to this particular question? But not
1: not especially. I mean, the moves on oligarchs and oligarch financing is absolutely not nothing. The moves on SWIFT are not nothing. They, they, they have an impact. But the, the focus of attention has been on this, and there's been significantly less on on sanctions uh, against the Russian central bank. But that I think is is the is the, the knockout blow here, and it's the one that the, the government will find it very very you know hardest out of anything to to get around, and everybody in Russia will find it hardest to get around. It's also sort of appealing if you're if you're sitting in the rest of Europe or you're sitting in Washington, because it looks like very very low cost. Like a bank run in Moscow or Saint Petersburg or wherever, it doesn't really affect you if you're in Berlin or London or, or Washington. It really doesn't matter. It's a, it's a run in a Russian bank in a different currency to the one you use, so it, it looks like something you can use with minimal economic blowback. If you start saying, "Oh well, let's like let's start to uh, impose restrictions on trading oil and gas." Okay, it hurts Russia because they want to sell the oil and gas and get the money. But it starts to hurt most of Europe when you find that uh, you know forty percent of your natural gas comes from Russia. So you say you're going to restrict this; it's hurting you as well. So there's a cost. So so the appeal of doing this. This move against the central bank is it actually looks like something you can do at relatively low cost, but it's not unprecedented. This is the point I'm making in the piece, which is that there are recent examples of something like this being done. It was never actually carried out to the point of actually imposing sanctions or actually pulling the plug on a banking system. But at least twice, I think probably three times, the European Central Bank has threatened Eurozone members with the collapse of their banking systems. With basically saying to to the bank authorities and the governments of Ireland in 2010, as it turned out, a, a secret agreement or a secret letter from the European Central Bank to the Irish government and the Irish financial authorities back in October 2010, saying that they would withdraw emergency liquidity assistance from Irish banks, which were you know, insolvent back in 2010, unless Ireland signed up to very strict bailout terms, including austerity and all the rest of it. similar thing in Cyprus in 2013 and then against the Syriza government uh, really aggressively uh, from early 2015 onwards where you have the European Central Bank basically saying we will not provide Greek banks with emergency assistance unless the Syriza government elected to oppose austerity implements austerity and therefore entitles itself to a bailout. So in other words, you're saying at this point because European Central Bank ultimately controls access to euros, which banks across the eurozone need. And it's saying if it's not providing this emergency assistance to insolvent banks, as you had in Greece in 2015, it's saying that, well, we're going to use our ability to restrict access to these euros, to undermine your banking system, to crash the thing, to provoke bank runs, to trash your economy. And this is a direct threat. You have to do what you're told. Now, Syria gave in all of these European countries gave it at this point. So it's something that has been. It's, it's, we've seen parts of before. We've seen the threat of something like this being done before in you know, large developed economies. This is the first time it's actually been applied in this sort of hostile way to, to a large
0: developed economy. When it comes to the strategic logic of doing this, there is the option, as I said earlier, of, of the Russians withdrawing and perhaps trying to suggest that, in some sense, they've they've won a victory by increasing control in the Donbass say, and and putting a large part of the Ukrainian military out of out out of action. But it would be a personal humiliation for, for Vladimir Putin, so it seems hard to see that he would agree to do that. Is alternatively the hope that other sectors of the Russian elite and people around Putin? will either force him to, to withdraw or will actually move against him and, and try and form an, an alternative government that would then be able to end the crisis that way.
1: Well, that, I mean, look, the, the latter is, is certainly a, a possibility at least. And, and the, 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 what seems to be a really high level of public distaste and, and public mobilisation against the war in Russia is, is a critical part of that. And, and the first murmurings, of course, of at least some of the oligarchs more distant from, from Putin, you know, Relatively powerful figures in the Russian economy and Russian politics are uh, making noises of, of some disapproval. So, but you know, we're only a few days into this, and it, it's it's hard to suddenly say that this is this is definitely an outcome that's going to happen. It's a desirable outcome in lots of different ways, but it's not necessarily the one that can be uh, relied upon. Of the other two, you're into the the what looks to me like a, a, a painfully close parallel with Iraq, which is that okay you decide you're going to invade somewhere legality of it is is in Russian case non-existent in the Iraq case well in reality non-existent but at least they sort of had a a go at trying to demonstrate otherwise and you have very limited ideas as to what your war aims are and what your outcome really at the other side will be. You know, if it's first get rid of Saddam Hussein, okay, fine, but then are you occupying Iraq? Are you going to try and create democracy? What does that mean, really? How long do you expect to be there for? How many troops do you expect to involve to do this? And it looks like a very similar set of questions to Ukraine, but probably worse. It's a bigger place. It's it's uh, very clearly a population that is much more inclined to defend not not just the country but also its actual government at this point in time, and it has backing of of major powers. So yeah, what I mean with with the really Iraq
0: parallel, I mean it's you know you might struggle to find ten people in Kiev who'll throw flowers and wave flags when when the Russian tanks come into town. Exactly, and then
1: then you look how Iraq turned out, Um so so you have to wonder what Vladimir Putin's actual war aims are at this point. Like to, to occupy and hold down the entire country looks disastrously incomprehensibly and unimaginably expensive and difficult it doesn't mean to say it's not a thing they might try and do or to impose a, a puppet government or something along these lines it doesn't mean to say it's not something you try and do but it looks so extraordinarily hard that you know you're outside of like, really thought through strategic calculations there or something that turns into like okay here is a major bargaining chip and here is a, a severely constraining the options that Ukraine has in the future to pursue its own its own course. That looks like something that, that might be a bit more plausible. Negotiations are, are taking place even as we speak on the border of Belarus. So we surprised if very much comes out of this at this sort of relatively early stage. But clearly, some sort of level of discussion and negotiation has been opened up already. And it might become clearer what Russia actually wants out of this uh, as a result
0: of that. Going back to the point around possible targeting of Russia's uh, fossil fuel exports. So as you say, making any such move whilst it would hurt Russia would obviously badly also hurt the West. But Is it certain, do you think, that fossil fuels won't be targeted if the crisis extends over a longer period of time so that the West can put in contingency measures to increase imports from the Gulf, say? And uh, I mean, I recently listened to an interview with Adam Tooze where I think, I don't think he thinks this is likely either, but he speculated that if it were to occur that the West might prefer it, if the Russians were to cut the flow themselves as, as a weapon against the West, since then it would not be Western governments that would take the political hit for price increases and shortages.
1: It's a possibility. But I think I'd agree with, that, with Adam on saying it's not a, a very likely possibility at this point in time, because you know, the Russian government needs hard currency in some form. And, and this is this is a dependency that's still there. But you know, clearly, at some point, the strategic consideration might might change around around doing that, the difficulty with finding alternatives to natural gas in particular is that the infrastructure isn't there to provide those alternatives, that there are fairly hard limits on how much liquefied natural gas can be imported. Just, you know, there aren't that many terminals in Europe, Britain has Top of my head, three or four as of this point in time, plus a couple of, of gas uh, gas pipelines connecting it with the continent. For the rest of the continent, there's a few liquefied natural gas terminals around, but not that many. So you have to expand that. So you have to do that as rapidly as possible. That is months down the line. You then have to expand the fleet of LNG uh, transporters. You then have to expand the facilities to produce the stuff in places like Qatar and elsewhere in the world. You then also run up against demand for that gas in the rest of the world, I mean, particularly in Asia, where... As recovery has happened from coronavirus, demand has spiked and the price has gone up and it's just been very hard to actually physically commandeer the gas that you want. So that immediate, like just the hard sort of physical economic facts. Work against you say okay we'll just switch out to gas very soon. It's similar thing with expanding you know say wind power or wind turbines. I mean it's it's probably it's relatively quick to build a single turbine. You can't just go crazy actually building these things, but it still takes a long time to replace the sheer volumes of natural gas that you're getting in from Russia. And in the case of some of the some of the hardware that you have, I mean, someone like Britain, less of a problem elsewhere in Europe, but someone like Britain has a great deal of home boilers that run on gas. You have to start to think about taking those out and replacing them with electric boilers if you're, if you're trying to go down the renewables route. So so none of this, I mean, there's also further off ideas like uh, synthetic gas and that kind of thing, but you're, you're much further away from being able to implement them on scale. So all of this is gummed up, right? This is not something that's going to move anytime soon. There isn't some other alternative source of gas or something that can easily and quickly replace gas on the scale. That, that Europe would demand. So that looks frozen in place and that probably puts Russia in a relatively stronger position precisely because that dependency is there. I mean, the, the wood Mackenzie analysis, which said that as of now, there's about, you know, were Russia to cut off the supply of gas entirely to Europe, there would be about six weeks worth of, of gas supplies available in storage, right? So you know, that's the kind of length of time in extremists you might be looking at before things really go, really starts to look very bad on this. And that is a much shorter period of time than what you need to expand and durability to import and process gas, let alone switching into renewables.
0: As well as the possibility of the more benign outcome when it comes to energy of, of an increase in renewables, I mean, there's also the possibility that this could lead to increasing dependence on, on coal, of which many European countries do have reserves of. Is, is that likely, or, or again, is it likely to be a more long-term switch if, if that were to occur?
1: It's quite hard now. I mean, there are, there are still large numbers of coal burning power stations scattered throughout Europe. But there's a sort of longer term process of of winding them all down and closing them. You'd know, be slow to actually expand and build the things you can if you're in China, build them quite quickly. It's slower if you if you're in Europe to do that. And you can increase the amount of coal you're burning at any of these these power plants. But again, you you run. It's the question of time that if you think this crisis with Ukraine is going to be over quickly. There's little point starting to try and implement these measures now because it's expensive and difficult and it takes a long period of time. If it starts to drag on, perhaps then you start to think, okay, well, then this is a longer term shift in the balance of, of energy that you need to get out of a dependency in Russia, at which point coal starts to to, start to appear in the mix, at which point you're then fairly hard into some of the arguments about climate change and the rest of it. Some of which has disappeared, by the way, over the last year. I mean, the, the increase in coal consumption in 2021, as the world economy turned back on again, um, driven in this case, I mean, there's a contradiction in China, the massively expanding renewables production at the same time as in the last year, a great deal of expansion of, of coal uh, power generation. You're, you're into running hard up against some of your other international commitments around climate change and the rest of it. And certainly it's not in any normal human sense desirable to say, OK, we must reopen coal plants and carry on burning coal. Uh, but that strategically may look like less of a consideration if the crisis really starts to grind on. But only under those circumstances, if, you, if it's going to be resolved in two, three weeks or even three, four months, that, that switch is much harder to justify.
0: You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.